0: skis I had two quotes written down on one ski it said choose your attitude no matter what happens to us we can choose our attitude right the moments between an event and our response to it is our choice and as Viktor Frankl said in man's search for meaning the last of our freedoms is the freedom to choose and to choose our attitude and I really believe in that and my choice was to step up to hold my head up to deal with it to carry on to laugh to do everything I could to manage
1: it. Welcome to Salish Wolf, a podcast bringing you inspirational stories of extraordinary endeavors. I am your host, Todd Howard. Just south of my Vancouver Island home is a tiny archipelago on which for nearly a decade lived a most astonishing animal, a lone wolf. Takea, as he would be named, survived and thrived in an environment where likely no wolf had ever set foot. In the process, he captured the hearts of a community and showed us even the most unlikely is possible. His story is not dissimilar to those of the individuals interviewed on this podcast. At some point, they each had to turn to their inner lone wolf. From there, they were able to lead and inspire. My intention is to share their journeys to help you discover your own inner greatness and peace. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor Point Expeditions, where I provide life-changing personal leadership retreats for men, coaching, and other valuable personal growth resources. Visit anchorpointexpeditions.com to see where your journey could take you. Paula Reed is a courageous adventurer who is forging a career in applying positive psychology to help other adventurers and leaders optimize their performance. As someone who has experienced extremes of skiing to the South Pole with a debilitating leg injury, paddling the Mekong in a dugout canoe, and yacht racing around the world for 10 months, she is no stranger to adversity and how it can impact outcomes. In this episode, Paula shares many exciting stories of her global exploits, including getting arrested in Cambodia and narrowly escaping war in West Papua. She takes us inside the mind of the adventurer to better understand how adversities can plague the psyche and quickly turn a quest for triumph into a battle to merely survive. And we also talk about the post-adventure blues that can haunt people when they return to the world of routine. The believed limits of human capacity is often challenged and expanded in times of our greatest duress. With a master's in applied positive psychology, Paula has dubbed the term adventure psychology to help people thrive during change, challenge, and uncertainty. Through exploring the extremes, Paula has learned so much about herself and her own capacity and is able to translate that into assisting leaders of all sorts, from athletes to CEOs, in their own expansion. Please enjoy this episode of Salish Wolf with Paula Reid. Paula, welcome to Salish Wolf.
0: Thank you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation, Todd.
1: It's great to have you here. I want to acknowledge Jordan Wiley, who's a past guest of mine, who spoke very highly of you in an interview I did with him and his crazy paddling trek around UK. He said you were very helpful in that, and he recommended you for the show. And when I started to look into your background, I've got to say, you are crazy, and I'm very impressed.
0: We'll come back to the crazy things, shall we? I (laughs) disagree.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's let's talk a bit about what it is that uh, you did to help Jordan and other athletes who are on, I guess, adventure quests. You are an adventure psychologist. What does that mean and how does that translate into real world?
0: Okay, so it's quite an unusual phrase and... I doubt if people have heard of it because I've kind of made it up, but one of my, uh, yeah, absolutely. One of my goals in life is to see adventure psychology properly named and recognized as a separate discipline to sports psychology. So for me at the moment, it means using my master's degree in positive psychology and mashing that together with all my adventure experience and creating something that I call adventure psychology, which is really how to survive, cope and thrive enduringly and sustainably, whilst also dealing with uncertainty, change and challenge. So if you can picture an adventure as opposed to a sport, it's longer, more enduring, and has more uncertainty and quite often challenge or adversity involved as well. So it's a psychology to help us mentally survive, cope and thrive in difficult times.
1: Okay, did you say positive psychology?
0: Yes, my master's degree was in applied positive psychology.
1: Okay, what is that? That sounds interesting.
0: That is about optimum human functioning and flourishing. Oh, I like that. So Yeah, so... So For so many years now, quite rightly too, a lot of research and investment has gone into what we know as traditional psychology, which is essentially uh, supporting people who need some mental support, whether that's anxiety or depression or PTSD or whatever it is. And that's especially after World War I and World War II, um, certainly in Europe anyway. Um, And then 20 years ago, Martin Seligman launched positive psychology in the US to redress the balance a bit and put some more focus and research into what makes us human beings optimally function and flourish. And you can imagine if we get that side of things right, then we'll, li- we'll need less of the traditional psychology because in theory, everyone was would be like super fit mentally um, as if we'd all been at the gym every day for a week or something. So it's an interesting one. And it's about hope, optimism, uh, goal setting, resilience, post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's a positive constructive outcome no matter what the circumstances.
1: So had you just shared that with me, optimum human functioning and flourishing, I would have thought that is the definition of psychology in general. So it it seems interesting to me that we we have to have this new kind of niche of psychology, which is positive psychology, which seems to be heading towards the same end goal that I think psychology should be heading for in the first place. But I guess traditional psychology, as you said, is kind of more based on dealing with negative things, and is it, it what is it just about to bring back the status quo?
0: It's um, we talk about. It's a bit of a harsh assessment, but we talk about a scale of minus ten to plus ten. So traditional psychology might help anyone who are in the minus ten to zero, you know, end of the scale. And it's a sort of disease and deficit point of view where therapy or counselling might be required and an assumption of something that's um, gone wrong or needing help to bring them back to level base, if you like. Whereas positive psychology is from zero to plus 10, kind of assuming nothing's fundamentally uh, broken if you like although i don't obviously call people with any uh mental health needs broken of course i'm just being um stark so we understand the concept yes um so assuming we're going from a place of general health how can we advance or progress that mental health or strength or fitness or well-being from zero towards the plus 10 end as much as possible
1: okay so we're all slightly fucked up in some way or another. <laughs> let's
0: you just, swore. you let's just, to swear.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, we are allowed. Okay, fine. <laughs> I was being
0: so careful up to that point. And I haven't even answered your first question, by the way, but I'm sure we'll come back to that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just want to be frank with that. And so if, and especially on adventures, like something that Jordan was doing, paddling for 100 plus days around uk including trying to get around scotland in the dead of winter that brings up a lot of personal shit yeah and if you're in positive psychology focusing on zero to plus 10 what happens when that person slides back through this hardship and adventure into minus five or minus 10 because it's bound to happen
0: um so (laughs) you are asking some tough ones here let's so so there might still be a base competence in someone so let's take Jordan for instance he, he may he may generally be healthy but just slip a bit backwards which as you say we all can do so if it's a sort of temporary um dip then he may still have a fairly healthy functioning system and if I can just um, suggest um, a tool or a technique or a, what we call a PPI, which is a positive psychology intervention, um, just to bring him back up, then great. If, however, there's a, there's a sort of more systematic overall um, challenge uh, from minus 10 to zero, then they possibly might benefit more from traditional therapy or counselling which I'm not qualified to give. Because um, as, a, as a coach, as a positive psychologist, and as an adventure psychologist, really I should stick to what I know and my expertise and not, not um, delve too much into the side, which I'm not uh, obviously trained to do. But now and again, if it's a dip or um, if I've already got a really good working relationship, like I have with Jordan and I feel like our partnership was working well, and that i knew him well enough to be able to suggest some positive um or constructive at least tips then then a dip now and again below zero is okay does that make sense it does
1: it does I don't bring up a... with
0: deep deep difficulty i'm not trained okay. to
1: it does bring up another question though in that do you pre screen then your potential clients before you work with them and they set out on these adventures
0: um, only in so much i have a, a conversation with them um, i don't use any clinical tools to assess their psychological health however obviously if something comes up that would alarm me or raise some red flags then i would then perhaps suggest um, a different interventional person to help them um, but you know life to be honest life is generally tough um, we're all dealing with shit, as you call it, all the time, right? Um, there's always some sort of trauma or adversity that we're struggling to cope with or grappling with. So, um, so I'm happy. I'm happy supporting to a certain extent um, various situations and contexts. I just, I just can't deal with the deeper end <laughs> because right. I'm not trained to.
1: At what point do you? typically come into the picture for someone is it when they are planning an adventure when i know in jordan's case i think he was already out on the adventure when you came on board his team how does that normally work for you and and do you normally stick around to see the adventure through to completion and then is there follow-up after that
0: so to be honest i don't always just work with adventurers i actually work with people everyone um adventure or not can do with some adventure psychology which is essentially how to cope survive and thrive in difficult conditions so i actually work most with um business leaders Uh, so but going back to the adventurers ideally i'm brought in pre-departure which i was with jordan actually about a month before i left um and quite often an adventurer doesn't know they want what i do because it's not a common term and it's not a um, established discipline. So with sports psychology, you might get a professional athlete or professional team who know that sports psychology exists and know the benefits and may be proactive, seek it or ask for that support. Whereas with adventurers uh, or even normal people in life, they don't really know adventure psychology exists and they don't necessarily know they want it. And John's the first to admit that from the outset, He never would have thought about asking for this sort of support. He never thought about the element that is the psychology of what he did. And the natural inclination is to sort out your kit and your physical fitness. But so much of it, especially an enduring challenge such as his is is the mental side, the mental toughness, the grit, resilience, reframing, determination, goal setting, motivation, and all that. So ideally for me, I get in before somebody goes on, on an adventure, but I actually also work with people in their normal everyday lives who are just generally having to adapt and evolve through difficult conditions.
1: I want to come back to the normal everyday life type of situation, but just to continue on with the adventure. Yeah. How do you support someone who is in the midst of an adventure?
0: So let's take Jordan because he was at sea quite a lot physically, uh, sometimes mentally probably as well. Um, I, I gave him, um, he, he, he used to take the mickey out of me because I used to give him three tips or three thoughts each time. But um, before he left, I gave him three tools to, um, to concentrate on uh, and to, to practice with. And then through WhatsApp actually, I was there for him constantly, potentially. So we had frequent um, comms through WhatsApp, sometimes once a day, sometimes more than that. and I would be supporting him in the moment. So if he'd had a shit day or if he'd had a brilliant day, or if he was pondering something or, or hurting for some reason, then you know'd we'd, we'd do some WhatsApp chat. and whether that was laughter and humor, and photos and and silly messages or whether it's a genuine proper you know tip or thought um, either voicemail or, or text I would do that with him regularly and then every uh, two weeks I think it was I also sent him a list of questions and I, I filled out a spreadsheet basically answering lots of questions about how he was doing so I could also track his mental health throughout the whole expedition which was about three months long and then after he came back um, I further followed up and tried to support him as about best I could because after an adventure, you can get the post-adventure blues and it's quite a hard time to adjust back into society when you've been on a some sort of heroic quest. So there was some after-adventure after support as well. Hmm.
1: <laughs> what does the post-adventure blues potentially look like and what is the strategy that you typically use to help people through that?
0: Well, I've experienced it myself, so I know it well. Um, there's a, there's a there's a narrative or a storyline, if you like, called the hero's journey. Which, if you think of any uh, probably classic film or book or fairy tale, a hero or a heroine sets off on a quest, and it's a journey of trials and tribulations and traumas, and you know, battling the weather or dragons or whatever it is, and um, the reward from the quest in in the film world is, you know, a chalice or a sword or a princess or whatever it is. In the real world, um, the the gift back, if you like, the boon they get from the adventure is perhaps wisdom or skills or um, perspective in life. So when you've been on a heroic journey or a very challenging adventure, you tend to live life um, in full technicolor, you feel fully alive, you're you're feeling vitally alive, Um, your blood is up, your muscles are working, you're having to be fully present because you're grappling with conditions and weather and adversity, so so you're feeling extremely switched on and you might also have lots of people following you or watching you or giving you support and motivation and going, wow, this is amazing what you're doing and you're doing photos and videos. So you do become a sort of um, heroic figure potentially, but then you come back and either the adventure finishes as it should or it finishes early or in difficulty. And then you've got to grapple with that um, acclimatization if you like back into your normal, real known world where everyone else perhaps is the same and nobody else has moved on or gone through what you've gone through. I imagine it's a bit like when, you know, military personnel come back from from a battle or something. And there's a massive adjustment um, and a normality surrounding you, which, you know, you feel like you've either outgrown or it doesn't quite fit with with what you've just been experiencing. So you you can get quite depressed. You have to face reality, uh, pay all your bills, um, answer all those emails that have stacked up in your absence, deal with humdrum um, life. Uh, you might be a bit tired or worn out it's just a massive contrast really between the heroic expedition you've been on and coming back to normality and that does require an adjustment to yeah you can get quite depressed or flat or um, don't feel like you're quite fit in um, that, that you've changed a lot since you left and and also doing the admin and house, housekeeping and hygiene factors which aren't quite as dramatic and exciting as you know, having to, I don't know, <laughs> fix your boat when you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean is difficult. Um, yeah. And I've experienced that. So some of the strategies really are finding something else to excite you or to stimulate you or to interest you. And that's either another adventure, of course, that you can talk about and think about and plan. Or it's just something else in your life that um, that rewards you, and it might just be reconnecting with your children, or or um, you know volunteering for a charity, or getting stuck into writing a book, or doing some work. But something, something that can divert and distract and pull your attention elsewhere, rather than you know moping that your adventure's over.
1: It really is fascinating that people can endure such extreme hardship live on the edge of life every moment. And then when it's over, it's the things like emails. And Mm. as you said, the administrative tasks that can be overwhelming. The mundanity of life can come in and really just knock them over after they've been on such an extreme adventure. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering though, and this may be the gap between positive psychology and traditional psychology, You said that often people will then look to the next adventure uh, to divert and distract. But potentially in that post-adventure blues or darkness, wouldn't there be an opportunity for inner exploration and potentially healing? And are some of these adventurers basically denying that possibility by going to the next and to the next and to the next with distractions. And I think Jordan Jordan and I talked a little bit about this, I think as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't list all the strategies with post-adventure blues, but clearly you're right. Um, reflection, um, finding peace and ease again, somehow writing a diary, uh, reconnecting with your heart, reconnecting with your family, um, Finding meaning, again, in your life um, that's not associated with the adventure. Quite often, writing a book or speaking at conferences can help you process what you've been through and what you think about it. Just even talking to a friend about it can help you process it. So, yeah, absolutely. There are many strategies, and and um, the diversion is just one tactic for sure. Okay. So, yeah, absolutely.
1: In your own personal experience as an adventure psychologist, what has been one of the hardest challenges you have had to confront? <laughs> and that can be either personally or in something that one of your clients is going through.
0: Um, I think, I think, one of the hardest things to deal with from my end of things is, is, a, is in a client or even in myself um, where there's a lack of openness or porosity to learning, development, growth, being present, taking on board some feedback. You know, if there's an absolute, you hit a brick wall um, for whatever reason. And so obviously you can't then really help to support or enlighten or educate or train or develop or gather some insight because there's just this brick wall that you're up against. But that's from my point of view as an adventure psychologist. Obviously from the client's point of view, there's all sorts of trauma and adversity and pain and suffering that goes on, which which is difficult uh, for both them and I quite often. And probably the hardest Um, times I've had is with myself you know I am also an adventurer and also a human being and I'm not perfect by any means so probably some of my toughest battles are just with me and what's going on in my own head Um, and I guess trying to maintain some sort of perspective when it's my own situation that I'm trying to cope with.
1: Mm, So when you're out on some of your own adventures you've encountered some obviously some pretty big challenges. Internally.
0: Yeah. Um, as an example, I skied from the coast of Antarctica to the South pole.
1: Yeah. Which remember when I, when I said you were crazy, that's crazy. (laughs) That's that's full on batshit crazy.
0: (laughs) Whereas I would say, it was extremely stimulating and amazing. So why is that crazy if I want to... Oh, I'm sure it was. that yes. to my life. <laughs> no, it's awesome.
1: <laughs> it's just not something most people would think. I'm going to ski from yeah. Antarctica to the South Pole.
0: Yeah. But you did it, And a lot of people wouldn't want to, which no. I totally get. <laughs> I'm not at all... One thing I suggest when I see people is that anyone could do it. Because I genuinely believe... You know, if you get your mindset right and the mental toughness and all that right, anyone could ski to South Pole, really, really, really. I truly believe that. I think we're amazing, us human beings, and we've got a lot of capability within us that we haven't realized. However, not everyone would want to, and I get that and I respect that. Um, so, so on day seven of my um, expedition, I got something called polar thigh, which is a really debilitating leg injury. It's a cold injury and um, the medics and the overall organizational um, support network uh, assumed and told me that I would be medevaced out as soon as possible and that they just had to sort out the logistics. It took me two days mentally to pick myself up from that and to start to think well actually do I really have to um, quit at this point in time and do I not have a choice and can I perhaps choose to continue whilst managing my legs and obviously making sure I didn't become a burden on the whole you know, team or the, the expedition. So yeah, I mean, I, I, it took me two days to, to mentally work that one out. Uh, that was before I did my degree in positive psychology, but even so, um, and that was tough. I remember just being completely demotivated, depressed, upset, lacking energy, struggling just to put one foot in front of another um and all those you know sort of difficult emotions and challenges for two yeah two days
1: so you said it was called polar thigh polar yeah yeah that's polar yeah (laughs) fitting name for the south pole to have that so it's what is it that the coldness just contracts the muscles to the point that they don't function
0: No, it's actually a flesh, you could sort of describe it like frostbite, but it's not frostbite. So it's classified as a non-freezing cold injury, NFCI, and um, you have to be in the cold to get it. And it seems that only a few people who are skiing to the South Pole or the North Pole can get it, hence the polar bit. And it only occurs on your thighs. So polar thigh is a very (laughs) descriptive description. Wow. Um, it's, it's kind of like, it starts off like a load of chillblains, so loads of red lumps all over your thighs. I had probably a couple of hundred of them on, on day seven. And then they, in my case, they merged together to form a raised, red, hard, hot welt of flesh. And then they blistered. And then um, then your flesh actually starts to deteriorate and break down and ulcerate. And then you get necrotic tissue And then all sorts of nasty, yucky stuff going on with your legs. So Uh, um, it's not nice. It's not nice.
1: What stage of that description (laughs) did you make it to? All
0: the way to the... um, Really? I knew as we'd been warned about it, you know, the medics before we left um, briefed us on all sorts of things that obviously could go wrong when you're in Antarctica. and, And it was the big one, you know, don't get polar thigh. And one way everyone felt to protect yourself from it is to wear a down-filled um, kind of skirt over your clothing. So we had a base layer, thermal brake base layer, then a windproof outer shell. And then it was also suggested we wore a down-filled skirt, which we all did over our legs, but it still didn't unfortunately stop me from getting it. Um, and it's a fairly recent phenomena they're not 100% sure exactly exactly what causes it and what the actual um, description is. But there's something along the lines of obviously being in a cold environment, the scissoring motion of your legs because you're skiing rather than climbing a mountain. They don't get it like on Everest or in a cold mountain. It's only on the skiing trips that it seems to happen. So something around the scissoring of your legs 12 hours a day whilst rubbing against your base layer And the friction that's caused, perhaps, from that pulling on the fine hairs of your thighs, maybe. And the size of your thighs, because they're both muscled and fat, to be able to ski to South Pole. So as your thighs push forward for each skiing step, probably your clothing um, has to stretch and thin as as your legs push forward. So you've got less protection and more mechanical abrasion through that. Whilst in a cold environment, whilst doing that for twelve hours a day, so there's something in that mix that's going on.
1: So you went all the way through to the necrotic stage.
0: Yeah, I had rotting legs by the time I got home, and MRSa, which was you know quite Uh, nasty as well, smelly rotting legs.
1: Oh, uh, I hope nobody's
0: eating while they're listening to this.
1: (laughs) So this was day seven. Mm. How long was the expedition?
0: 46 days
1: so holy shit so
0: I just cracked on so by the end of day nine I'd kind of worked out in my head that I didn't necessarily have to quit um I still needed an intelligent conversation about it which I had that night with the medics and with the expedition company but I said do I have to quit because it was an assumption and everyone else I think had quit before me And they said, well, not really. And I said, well, okay then. Um, They said, you you need to manage any infection and you have to manage pain. Well, out in Antarctica, there's hardly any risk of infection. It's a pristine environment in minus 40 degrees with just snow and ice. There's no dirt. Um, So kind of no germs really. Um, So the infection thing wasn't a huge deal And the pain thing, I'm good at pain. I can do pain. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I just had painkillers a lot. So I managed that. And um, the only other thought was whether I ever became too slow or too much of a, you know, liability, I suppose. But I managed that as well.
1: Was there any potential risk of it spreading, of doing irreversible damage i think of necrosis of the flush of the thighs and i just like to think wow 40 days of that like you're gonna lose your legs was yeah there any no i that? kept
0: an eye on it i'm i'm pretty sensible so i i checked it out every day i'd get a mirror out to look at the backs of my legs um there was a medic in our team who checked it out every now and again I kept an eye on it, and I'm, I'm I'm not, I'm not, um, don't welcome risk and losing limbs into my life. So, and it obviously deteriorated. So it just got worse and worse. But by the end, I had a lot of open wounds, um, and then the damage kind of carried on when I got home. So it was five months of bandages and painkillers and <laughs> tramadol 12 tramadol a day which was quite nice actually that <laughs> dealt with the post that was uh, that dealt with the post-adventure blues quite nicely um so there's a lot going on but I was constantly aware and making decisions about me and I think that's partly you know some some adventurers get a lot of flack for being too risky or or death defying or you know I don't know, welcoming risk or danger into the lives, but actually I believe most people are good at being risk aware and managing it. And that's, you know, that's what we do when we go on these expeditions.
1: Knowing that it took five months to recover and obviously the power of, of foresight or uh, hindsight. Are you glad that you did it? Are you glad that you pushed through? Yeah.
0: Yeah. on my skis I had two quotes written down on on one ski it said choose your attitude no matter what happens to us we can choose our attitude right The, the 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 moments between an event and our response to it is our choice and um and as Viktor Frankl said in man's search for meaning you know the last of our freedoms is the freedom to choose and to choose our attitude and I really believe in that and my choice was to step up To hold my head up, to deal with it, to carry on, to laugh, to do everything I could to manage it, and so on. And on the other ski, I had pain is temporary, pride is forever, because we all suffer now and again, but how we deal with it and what we achieve and how we cope and stay respectful or courteous or kind or strong, that's what stays with you. And although it was physically painful that's okay you know it, it it's added a chapter to my life that was especially interesting I met a lot of interesting people because of it I've got a story to tell but actually the main thing is I can I can hold on to that sense of achievement and I'm proud of the fact that I had the right attitude on the trip and that I completed the whole challenge um, And I think completed it kind of logically and intelligently, despite having two legs that were quite painful.
1: What did you learn most about yourself?
0: Um, (laughs) I already had the belief, but it was, it became stronger that people generally, not just me, people generally are so amazing and that we can achieve so much and especially with me that you know every time I had to dig deep and dig a bit further there was more resources within me and I think that also applies to everyone else too though so I learned that I can and that I did and if I dig deep there's amazing qualities and reserves of energy and grit and all sorts in me but I also definitely apply that to everyone else too.
1: And was there anyone, you mentioned a medics, was there anyone in particular on your crew who said something or supported you in a way that was crucial in you pushing on? In other words, did anyone play the adventure psychologist role?
0: Uh, not on that chair, but in fact, the opposite happened a bit um, where people um, perhaps made me weaker with their comments rather than stronger. Um, So it was mostly within myself that I pulled it out of the bag eventually. Uh, I don't think to be fair, the others quite realized how bad my legs had got. And after we landed back at the the base camp, um, I was showering and trying to pull off all my dressings, which was quite painful. And one of the other guys in the group Realised he looked at my legs and he was completely shocked at how bad they actually were. So I don't think they quite realised how bad my legs were. Um, But also, yeah, there was there was comments that made me feel weaker and less capable and less strong, rather than the other way around.
1: Hmm. Testament to your strength.
0: (laughs) Eventually, (laughs) did take me two days. Don't forget to work that one out.
1: (laughs) so pain is temporary pride is forever pride cometh before the fall does pride ever play a negative role in your adventures or in those that you are assisting others on
0: yeah great question and and yeah of course pride can be too much and i'd perhaps link it to ego actually um and I'm not perfect, as I said. I, I can perhaps be too um, full of my own self-importance or pride or whatever sometimes. But generally, I think I'm pretty good at the, that, at the humility bit. And I'm quite often given the feedback that I'm very accessible as, a, as an adventurer. Um, try not to put myself up too high with it. So, so the phrase, pain is temporary, pride is forever, it's just a, a, a catchy phrase. I think it's more about achievement and um, a sense of achievement rather than being proud as such. And I personally believe that both courage and humility are brilliant adventurous qualities that are possibly forced upon us when we're we're on our adventures um, and are both amazing leadership qualities. So when I bring adventure psychology into leadership, I talk about those two concepts quite a lot because I think in order to lead or go on an adventure, one needs courage to push ahead and, and um, deal with challenge or adversity or pain and even just make decisions to put one foot in front of another, but also a lovely humility to just bring us back down to earth and make us realise perhaps how amazing nature is or or the fact that um, there's lots of other people out there who can be helpful or useful and we're not we're not solo you know solo heroes. So I yeah, I think courage and humility together are, are fantastic, and I'd like to think I'll practice both as much as possible.
1: How did you get involved in the adventure side of things to be personally going off on these adventures?
0: Just as a kid, I had one of those lovely growing up experiences where I was getting dirty and and going outside a lot and adventuring, you know, in my own little childish way. So exploring, um, yeah, getting muddy and dirty, whether that was climbing trees or push through some hedges to find out what was on the other side, possibly being a bit naughty, um, you know, just generally with my exploring, into lands and fields and gardens that I possibly wasn't allowed to go into, but loving the, you know, You sound
1: like Peter Rabbit.
0: Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Getting my blue jacket caught on a bramble. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. I, I love exploring. I love, I love, yeah, I'm curious. I'm, and, um. So there's a lot of that going on basically. And I grew up, you know with brilliant parents who just generally supported me and even though being a girl in the 1960s 1970s I just felt quite free and um, able to do what I wanted to do a bit and yeah explore get dirty do my own thing and then I went to a big um, comprehensive school which which was just like thousands of kids from all different walks of life and I think that was a good experience for me not too precious, uh, lots of, um, again, rebelling perhaps, and a few detentions and things like that. And then when I was 15, I went to India with the school, which is pretty amazing because we went for a month and it was very basic and very sort of traumatic actually as a as an experience, but my school was pretty um, courageous and took seven hours out there when we were 15 and it was quite hardcore and I kind of rose to the occasion really and enjoyed the challenges that India brought me and realized that I loved the fact there was a different culture, different geography, different climate, and that life was quite tough and we can rise to the occasion when we need to.
1: What was somewhat traumatic about that experience in India?
0: Um, so I'm talking I'm going back to the 1980s probably yeah probably 1984 1985 and where we went to it was very rural so I'm not sure that some of the places we went to had even seen a white person before so very simple basic living and lifestyle and you know we lived with the indians um it was just quite a shock when you're 15 and you didn't really know any, anything different Um, lots of sights and smells which were pretty shocking as well especially in what was Bombay in those days what we saw you know cruelty to animals and lots of suffering and um, disability and poor living conditions and dirt and squalor and disgusting toilets in our point of view and stuff like that it was hard and then we also camped once um, where there were some tigers and I remember having a massive conversation about whether that was okay or not. (laughs) Um, And a little bit too much local attention from some of the, uh, some of the men because we were kind of young and 15 and yeah, all sorts going on.
1: Yeah. And yet you identify that as a formative experience for you. What kind of came out of
0: that? I think, I think the, The two teachers we were with were slightly disconnected from what was actually going on. So the students themselves rallied around each other and we came up with our own solutions and ways of coping. And I think I became a bit of a um, leader figure on how best we should cope and deal with some of the stuff that was going on. Um, And it felt quite natural so i kind of facilitated or led a lot of the solutions and um yeah attitudes that we ended up using to be able to cope with it all um and that was just interesting so it was perhaps just a natural thing for me to be able to deal with that sort of thing to get over the difficulty perhaps a bit quicker than the others and to come up with a plan of action or a a song or a I don't know, something motivational to get us through it.
1: So you found out during that experience that you had some leadership strengths within you?
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: When did you first start to adventure? Like when was your first expedition of sorts and what was that?
0: Um, so, so. Peter Rabbit style you know when I was (laughs) six or seven for sure (laughs) I mean adventure people say oh can't afford to do a big adventure but obviously adventure isn't necessarily a big expedition to an expensive place it can be you know back garden adventuring can't it or just camping or going down a path you've never been down before so so proper adventuring in a way since I was a kid um I did um, one of those years backpacking um, and went a bit more off the beaten track perhaps than some other people do. So so quite often there's a fairly standard route through um, maybe Bangkok and Bali to Australia and back sort of thing. But I actually chose to go a bit more off the beaten track on my trip and that was to India and Kathmandu and um, Borneo, Java, Sumatra, You enjoy it and some of the more unusual places on that round the world trip. So I did that when I was in my mid twenties, I think, as my year out.
1: Hmm. And was that the same trip where you got arrested in Cambodia or was that a different
0: trip? (laughs) All right. You've been doing (laughs) research.
1: Yeah, I just just read that on your website.
0: Thanks. Thanks for putting that out there. No, it's fine. It's um, no, that was that was one of my favorite tricks. Not, well, I was gonna say favorite experiences. It wasn't, it wasn't the best experience. No, that was um a few years later, I had a friend called Michael, and he he used to build barns for a living. Um, and we were discussing going away again and having a bit of a hoot. And we both realized that sometimes the way that you travel in a country can be the most. Um, can make the whole you know traveling thing a bit more interesting so we decided to buy a dugout canoe off a village in northeast Cambodia and paddle it down the Mekong (laughs) so it was a very rough and ready sort of adventure it was brilliant it it worked out so well so we literally flew to um, Phnom Penh caught another internal flight up to um, a place called Lumfat in northeast Cambodia, then caught a motorbike to the river and then found a village and then found the chief and then negotiated by drawing pictures in the mud um, (coughs) to try and buy a boat off them. And eventually, a couple of hours later, he kind of realized what we were trying to do, which is basically buy one of their boats and go, go with it and not come back. So he suddenly burst out laughing and smiled and nodded and pointed to a dugout canoe on the river, and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we bought it, <laughs> um, and we just literally had a bag of rice and a machete and a tent and set off down the recon together with with this dugout canoe, which was fantastic. What a brilliant experience that was! <laughs> um, camping each night, and it was it was almost. I think I invented stand up paddling because again, we're going back many years. And my oar was so heavy because it was made of wood that I physically got really tired lifting it over the side of the dugout to be able to paddle. So I eventually just stood up and got my balance. It was quite a well-balanced boat. And uh, I basically stand up, paddled down the Mekon before it's <laughs> supping was a thing. Anyway, we, um, we went past a large town on the Mekon and I think, there were some police there who were bored and enjoy interacting with tourists and they basically got into their speedboat and um, pulled us over with their machine guns onto the side of the river and at first I said to Michael just keep rowing just keep rowing we'll be all right and we rowed faster and faster and Michael was quite worried I said we'll I'll be we'll be fine but then they overtook us again and were quite aggressive pointing their guns at us to to um, pull up on the river, so we did. And then they basically held us at gunpoint for like half a day and we had no idea why. And we didn't speak Cambodian. And I remember going for pee in the bushes and they just came with me and pointed the guns at me while I was having a pee. So I got quite cross at that point and had a go at them. (laughs) Um, But eventually the chief of police came and kind of told us off for doing what we were doing, even though I don't think it was illegal. And they hauled us back to their town and kind of arrested us and put us out under house arrest for a night. But again, I think it was just an excuse to get to know us because they introduced us to all their mates and they showed us off to their families and said, look at who we've got and what they're doing. It was ridiculous, really. Um, and we were eventually released the next day. Um, they made us put our dugout canoe on the roof of a great big passenger boat and said, you know, that's how you get into, back to Phnom Penh. And we said, okay. And then at the next town, we got off and carried on carried on paddling. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a bit of a silly situation, really. It was a good fun, though.
1: <laughs> wow. What is one of the most memorable and most challenging experiences that you have encountered?
0: Um, West Papua. So probably a lot of your listeners have heard of Papua New Guinea, and it's quite often featured as a very you know, wild and um, unsophisticated place to go. And I went to West Papua, which is like three times as wild as and un- unsophisticated as Papua New Guinea. It's basically the same island, and it's the western half, which belongs to Indonesia. Um, so you're talking very, very, very remote um, tribes where there's no roads, no transport, nothing mechanical Um <clears throat> and various tribes in West Papua who are living a very, very basic and simple life in huts. The men wear penis gourds, the women wear grass skirts. Uh, apart from that, really, they're kind of naked and they might have a few chickens, but that's it. And they live on sweet potatoes that they grow in their meagre hillsides and, and that's it. So it's an incredible place to go. I, I trekked around there for about 6 weeks. So physically it was very demanding because it's quite mountainous and jungly and with roaring rivers and rapids and you know um, falling earth and stone falls and everything but also interacting as best as I could with the locals and trying to be kind and courteous and you know not give them a bad rep, not give us a bad reputation so living a very basic simple life whilst adventuring and they're beautiful people but then some of the harder aspects were the fact that um, the west papuans i think sometimes get um troubled by for instance the indonesian military um, there's some gold mines and other mines in their country which you know various Australian companies, of my own, and there's a bit of local trouble and misunderstanding, and unfortunately, the the power of the of the mine companies or the power of the Indonesian military is is at such an extreme opposite to these people who are, who've just got bows and arrows and no clothes and they're living in you know huts. So some of the most distressing time was just after that when I was witnessing on the television. Um, then, you know, really getting shot with machine guns and their huts set on fire when, when they're just really, you know, minding their own business and running around with bows and arrows. It's awful. I'll never forget that.
1: And this is something you Sorry. witnessed after you left.
0: It was while I was in the country, but I was in like the main town where there was actually an airport. So there was actually a television Um, And it had all kicked off um, politics and stuff when I was still there. Um, It was just such an unbalanced power struggle. It was ridiculous. Mm. So it was hard in many ways and very memorable for, for many reasons. And I've got a massive fondness for them in my heart now. And it was one of the best experiences in a way that I've ever had in stunning country and incredible people.
1: Mm -hmm. That one's hard. Mm. Earlier, you spoke about using adventure psychology, not just for the grand, great adventures, but for the everyday, smaller Mm. adventures. What is that like?
0: Or actually just life, so I think life itself is one long journey, let's call it, um, and it has obstacles and barriers and the ups and downs that we need to navigate and essentially we're trying to get from where we are now to, to wherever the end is. Um, and the whole of the future is a new land, we haven't been there before. So, there's stuff that's unpredictable, such as the pandemic, and there's challenges and adversity, and ups and downs, and you know, mountains and valleys, if you like. So, I think life itself is a journey, and we need to adapt and evolve constantly in response to the context. And that requires skills which are not dissimilar to when you're going on an adventure. So, our ability to keep going forwards somehow. Um, despite conditions and so I, I can work with you know children, teenagers, um, business people and generally give them some skills and tools and strategies and a mindset to to help them cope generally with life but I specifically enjoy working with business leaders so I, I enjoy <clears throat> um, working with chief executives or managing directors or business owners because I think to lead an organization over time is, is also a massive challenge or adventure or venture or quest, whatever word you want to use. And, and that's where I work as well. So that looks like, I think really just first of all, recognizing that a lot of our progress or achievement is due to what's going on inside our heads. It's not always physical and it's not always about skills and ability. There's a lot of attitude or mindset that's applicable. So big conversations around that and how much our mindset or attitude affects our performance. Um, And that's quite often how I kick off a discussion or a meeting Uh, and on average, on average across many, many people over the last few years, I get 87 or 90% of our performance or our progress is down to what's going on inside our heads. Then there's a massive debate about skill and talent and all that, which is always interesting. Um, And I look at our language and how we talk to ourselves and the narrative that we've got going on and how much language affects us and how to perhaps reframe when we're facing challenge or difficulty. So how can we have a more helpful way of looking at things or helpful way of thinking about things? And I get people to define success because it's not always making 10 million pounds um, and define failure if there is such a thing. And I talk about quitting and when do we know when to quit and when would be a shit quit? So there's all sorts of things- What's a shit quit? (laughs) Maybe when you shouldn't have. So if I'm a a business leader, let's say, and I've got a big venture ahead, a big project ahead, like, I don't know, restructure or new product or moving the business or downsizing or whatever, um, I get them to define success in the first place, beyond the numbers, because business people are so used to saying about numbers and KPIs, uh, and I get them to talk about the way that they do it or you know is it at the detriment of their mental health or their marriage and and you know so defining success and then i get them to um define failure if there is such a thing and also what would make them legitimately stop and what would be perhaps considered a shit quit which would be they would regret it afterwards
1: what's the difference for you between quitting and surrendering <laughs>
0: I use the word quitting on purpose cause it's a bit provocative. Um, cause language is interesting and and so I use the word quit because it is a bit provocative. Um, surrendering. <laughs> There's acceptance, which I think is associated with surrendering. So accepting life can be tough, accepting pain accepting the situation is what it is that's that's sometimes called surrendering like surrendering to the pain for instance but then I I also think about the master versus victim mentality a bit so you can be a master of your choices or your decisions or a victim of circumstances and I and so I wouldn't think the victim surrendering is quite as um, constructive as a more considered accepting surrendering. Right. <laughs> Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. And it's uh, surrender can be, <laughs> I, th- I think, typically we, we think of it in kind of the, probably the Hollywood style of I surrender, I give up, you've got me as opposed to in the more spiritual sense of I'm just going to surrender to what is and trust. Mm. And if you're in the victim mentality, there will not be that trust. And so you cannot just surrender into the unknowing and trust that the universe has you if you're being a victim. Whereas if you're coming to it from a place of A master as you said kind of master of your own fate then surrendering i think allows someone to fall back into that trust and just go with whatever is going to come up and know that it's going to work out
0: yeah there's also another element i suppose which is the choice to surrender which is also quite a strong surrender if you like which is where you can choose your battles so um I sometimes talk about what you can control, what you can't control, but also what's in your area of influence. And if it's in your area of influence then choose your battles. You might not choose to fight every fight because it's exhausting or it would take up too much time or energy or whatever. So I think that's a positive surrender where you've chosen not to fight that battle. And I also talk about when you're in survival mode, so when circumstances are so tough that it makes sense to hunker down, um, then I think you can also then surrender a lot in order to just look after yourself and survive and get through the day. And I think that's a legitimate surrender too. So it's interesting. I've never been asked that before, but I guess there's different versions of it.
1: Mm-hmm. What well, reminds me too of what you said about Viktor Frankl and having the the power to choose how oh, that's a right that can never be taken away. And I think that there can be Is not the right word, but almost a victory in choosing to surrender as opposed to uh, being victim of the circumstances and going down that way.
0: Yeah. Which for me goes back to your legit versus shit quits in a way.
1: Yeah. I'm still hung up on one of the things you said earlier about 0 to 10 and, sorry, minus mm. 10 to 0 and 0 to plus 10. Mm. Do you ever have to refer out clients for other work that's outside of your scope? And yeah. do you do you ever just say, look, I, I can't work with you until you deal with this shit?
0: <laughs> Don't quite say like that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't work with you until you (laughs) deal with this shit (laughs) deal with
1: your shit deal with your shit
0: what's that not working with you until you (laughs) sort yourself out yeah it it, roughly yes (laughs) i belong to a coaching supervision group and we're constantly checking in with each other to make sure we're not crossing any lines and um i know there is counseling and therapy out there as an option. And I know I'm not trained in that and I should not stray into that zone. Um, so quite often I'd have a conversation with the client or whoever, reflect my observation, you know, I'm seeing this or I'm hearing this, or I'm wondering this, get them to sort of perhaps respond. And any time I'm particularly worried for, you know, if if it just feels beyond my capabilities or if it feels there's something deeper going on that isn't currently being dealt with or whatever then I will have a, a constructive conversation about it out of curiosity and occasionally yeah I have deferred somebody to uh, a different type of service and quite often had them back again you know once they've dealt with their shit as you yeah. put it <laughs> yeah once they're more enjoyable
1: to work with <laughs> <laughs>
0: once i like them again <laughs> no i joke i joke please don't anyone write in about this <laughs>
1: <laughs> so with adventure psychology since you've you've kind of dubbed the term this is something that i, I guess was it on adventures, was it the Arctic quest or was it something like that that actually inspired you to study the positive psychology and turn this into a career?
0: Yeah, there's a couple of things. One is I I have personally physically felt the embodied and mental energy and emotions and thoughts that come with either being in a good place or a bad place. I mean it's so obvious when you're on an adventure and you're in a grump or you're feeling happy and what it does to your energy and your movements and your physicality and your presence and your awareness of what you're doing I felt it often didn't really make it a scientific knowledge or, or anything just have experienced it and then about five years ago six years ago I felt like studying something, I love learning and I quite often read lots of books and articles and listen to podcasts. And I just felt like learning something specific and meaty. So I just started to research, learning all sorts of things. Lots of leadershipy stuff I was quite interested in, but this this degree in applied positive psychology just, just kept bubbling up to the surface while I was researching and Googling and so on. And it was calling me, I think. So I looked into it and I had no intention of doing a master's degree of all things. I really didn't want to do the academic process and academic writing, um, but I chose to do that and I loved it um, and my it was my dissertation. So whilst I was very stuck on what my subject or my theme would be for my dissertation and everyone else seemed to, seemed to know what theirs was, I was like, oh no, I don't know. I eventually just suddenly, Well, I suddenly realized that, of course, I should study the positive psychology that that is provided through going on an adventure. So my dissertation, my research was the purpose and benefits of going on an adventure and the outputs were just awesome. And the data, the insights. um, Yeah, it was uh, the interpretation of it all was just really amazing way beyond that i imagined and it's still living strong now um so so it grew from that and now i'm writing a book for routledge to which is going to be you know adventure psychology my strap line is going knowingly into the unknown so what we can do mm-hmm. to boost our skills and um, mindset and language and knowledge before we go into the unknown so adventure psychology going knowingly into the unknown came out of my dissertation it's the strap line to my business and it's going to be the title of I think the first ever academic textbook that absolutely pulls all that amazing stuff together um yeah so that's it's so cool
1: yeah. yeah good for you yeah so that obviously is a big uh, opportunity and push forward for you into this realm of adventure psychology is there anything else that you see this evolving into or that you are most excited about moving forward
0: yeah i mean it's a very new i mean there is there is adventure therapy um which comes at it from the other angle that we've talked about and there's outdoor education and there's outward bound and you know it's not a new thing to do it's just it's not been properly named and recognized and launched as a discipline so before i die on one of my things to do before i die is you know to have it officially recognized and named and launched and scoped and understood as a distinct discipline away from sports psychology because it is very different yeah it is Um, and i've had my article published but it had to be published in the journal for Sport and exercise psychology which is sort of annoying because that's what I'm trying to pull it away from. But that's where it's currently sits. Um, so there's a tiny bit of overlap between the two, but there's a lot that's different. Um, I've also got a network on Facebook of about 200 people around the world. I love the fact it's global um, of either adventurers who are really into their psychology or psychologists who are really into the aspect of adventure. So there's you know there's a an interest so there's 200 of us and everyone's amazing and they're all kind of studying survival and you know all sorts of fear courage sisu which is um, a concept where you go beyond your perceived limitations obviously resilience there's a lot of people that are really interested in it and i'm pulling them together in a, in a Facebook group at the moment, and we're trying to share best practice and evidence and insights with each other so we can boost the whole discipline globally. Um, so the book, the network are, are both really exciting, but then ultimately I would like to see it sitting in a, you know, a country's psychological association as a distinct category. And I've tried that already. I've tried America, I've tried England, I've tried Australia and at the moment it's too new and shiny for to be accepted. So I I'm doing a ground up rebellion.
1: (laughs) And I have no doubt you'll succeed with that. (laughs) Even if it's something like Papua New Guinea adopts it as as, (laughs) you'll figure it out. As far as adventure goes, what's what are you working on now? Do you have something in the mix?
0: we're in the thick of the pandemic, aren't we? And in the UK, it's a mess. You know whether we can travel, whether we can't, how we travel. It's just a mess. I'm waiting for that to subside, really, because nobody knows where they are with with tests and quarantines, and which countries are green and which ones are orange or red. So I'm just I'm letting that all pass, and hopefully next year we'll have some sense of normality back. I'm in the middle of cycling across 50 countries and I've done 12 and that's the main thing that's been curtailed by by the travel restrictions so I'm desperate to get back on my bike and cycle across some more countries um, that's quite an easy one to make happen really and I, I was enjoying it I was enjoying it pre-COVID um, so that's on the cards I was due to row across the Atlantic this December with a team of three other girls but um, had to pull out of that but the, th- the th- four girls now are going to carry on without me. So they leave in December to row across the Atlantic and they're called the mothership. Wow! So I'm supporting wow. them. Yeah. Um, yeah. The North pole is a possibility that I'm holding there as an option. Maybe, maybe, because it would be nice to do the North and the South poles and just experience the two extremes. But then I am quite conscious of travel and um, you know, being a bit more eco-friendly so obviously lots of adventures at home as well um I've also just signed up to volunteer for a youth adventure trust so I can help I'm really keen to help others um have an adventurous time outdoors with some fresh air while they're sorting out their shit
1: <laughs> somehow that's going to fit into the adventure psychology uh, definition yeah yeah <laughs> oh that is so great this has been a lot of fun I've learned yeah, a lot
0: good good questions and you kept them coming because every time <laughs> I pause I think has he got another one in the barrel and then you shoot it at me <laughs> so you've done well
1: <laughs> I've got I've got a team behind me off camera <laughs> that just in your feeds ear. me questions <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love uh, I loved having discussions though it's, it, it opens my mind each time and it's good to be questioned and challenged, and also have a bit of two-way, you know, interaction yeah. about this stuff because it's all new and it's, you know, developing, and it's good. I enjoyed well, it's,
1: it. It's interesting too because I'm just, as I said, I was hung up on the minus ten to zero and the zero to plus ten because I guess I'm working a lot with, especially men in the minus ten to zero range, to yeah. try to get some breakthroughs in the sense of aligning with purpose and integrity and yeah just finding meaning in life so that Good. they can then go on and go into the yeah. the zero to plus ten. So it's interesting to speak with someone who's on the the positive end of that scale. And
0: well, I think what you're doing, Todd, is fantastic because I think sometimes the lens in which we work, if we're coming from the other end, we're assuming, I think you know, an issue and therefore our responses or the way we interact are coming at it from, you know, um, from a negative space, if you like, you know, the, the interventions, the approaches, the counts, even the word counseling for me mm-hmm. has a bit of a negative, you know, sort of aspect to it. Whereas I still, I do think we can still come from the other end, like you said, purpose, meaning, goals, uh, you know, what motivates them, what drives them, what's strengths, you know, strength-based approach i still think we can come at it from the other end and i and i sometimes feel that if we do too much ther- therapy or counseling it can magnify the issue or challenge whereas if we come at it from a strengths-based approach or a vision approach or a purpose approach um i think it can perhaps reduce the power or the effect of the difficulty
1: yeah well and i think there's as so you spoke of that, I was reminded of all the traditions of various indigenous cultures, vision quests or purpose quests where mm. men are sent out or women are sent out mm. and, and in some Initiation cases it's and initiations, stuff, yeah. yeah. Mm. And so those and those are kind of the adventures of antiquity. That were used actually as a form of therapy to help people. Yeah. To use use the phrase again to deal with their shit and then to rise above that and step into manhood or womanhood and yeah and really align with serving the greater tribe or whatever it may be.
0: Yeah, and I and I believe and I know I can get some flack for this, but I believe we might have gone too soft. So the. It's hard to know the right course of action, and we're all different. I recognise that, but if we mollycoddle or cotton wool ball, ball everyone too much, they lose that sense of self determination or self management or whatever it is. And I and I think we we generally have gone quite soft as well with the way we live and you know the lifestyle, the easiness. And I'm only talking about certain aspects of the world, of course. There's many people that are still dealing with um, you know physical safety but by and large I think we've gone too soft with a lot of our culture and you know the health and safety police and all that sort of stuff whereas actually we need to be tested and strengthened and experience struggle and adventure and adversity in order to yeah grow and develop our muscles and get stronger and realize how capable we are actually on our own two feet yeah. Without all the props yeah. of the system.
1: I, I agree completely. And I think that's the that's why all these cultures had the rites of passage. Mm. That's why it was something that was it was part and parcel of pretty much every ancient culture. And now that we don't have that mm-hmm. in modern society, that there does seem to be this lack of transition from childhood into so-called adulthood. And mm. I think people are living, in many cases, in a, a phony reality, and that's often a digital reality. And it puts them. It, I, th- I think, it encourages them to be more in the victim mode than in mm. this this mode of taking self responsibility and yeah. even stepping into the occasional warrior mode and going out and and, and carving your own path and facing mm. adversity and rising mm. to that challenge and learning your own inner strength.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's just, yeah, we, we've perhaps gone a little bit too PC with yeah. this stuff. And even having this conversation, I'm sitting here thinking somebody's going to not agree and somebody's going to complain. That, but by uh, and large, I believe our our thinking is, is the right way.
1: Yeah. Hmm. thank you (laughs) i'm so glad that we had the chance to connect and yeah you're doing some incredible things so keep up the good work i'm very excited for the textbook do you have (laughs) an eta on that
0: next year um i'm hoping the end of next year it'll actually be out
1: great that's so cool yeah. keep it up like, am, amazing carving basically carving your own profession and and also <laughs> these adventures that you go on like it's incredible so, <laughs>
0: keep being I, crazy eh?
1: i commend you yes very crazy but it's crazy is good
0: but as well you know what you're doing is fab and the fact you're broadcasting you know some messages through this is brilliant so i'm sure the work you're doing as well is extremely beneficial to every individual that you touch or interact with. So fantastic. Thank you. I'm right back at you.
1: Paula, where can people learn more about you or connect with you?
0: Um well I'm trying to amalgamate my five websites into one. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm fed up with trying to upkeep. Um I'm just gone back to me, so paulareed.com. Okay. Um <laughs> auto directing everything through that so that's my website that's who i am and obviously there's a contact form in there for people to say hello or if they want to have a chat
1: okay sounds good well <laughs> thank you again it's been wonderful let's stay in touch and maybe do a follow-up at some point
0: point. and maybe an adventure together one hey, day
1: that sounds nice let's do that
0: why not thanks todd
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Salish Wolf with Paula Reed. To learn more about Paula and her work, please visit Paulareed.com. That's P-A-U-L-A-R-E-I-D.com. Please check out anchorpointexpeditions.com for information on my men's leadership retreats, men's groups, and personal development coaching. Although retreats are on hold until 2022, consider joining the Anchor Point men's group that meets virtually twice a month. This show was produced by me, Todd Howard, on Vancouver Island. Music was written and performed by Jason Kaus of the Darcy's. Special thanks to Pacific Rim College for their ongoing contribution to the show. For episodes on holistic health and sustainability, please tune into my other podcast, Pacific Rim College Radio at pacificrimcollege.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using and share it with your friends and family. If there is a guest you would like to recommend for the show, please email discover at anchorpointexpeditions.com. You have been listening to Salish Wolf. I am Todd Howard, signing off.